0: Well, this is the third week in our series simply titled Money. And before we go any further, let me just say this once again. Uh, I get it. Talking about money is an awkward thing, let alone talking about money in a church service. Um, But it's important to talk about, and apparently Jesus thinks it's important to talk about as well, because Jesus spoke about money more than any other topic in the Scriptures, next to the kingdom of God. And I also want to say, if you're a guest with us this morning... I want to encourage you to stick around and listen, because how a church talks about money is really important. Before I would ever call a church home, I would want to know, what is their view on money? How do they talk about money? Is there any sense of guilt or manipulation? And so we want to simply present what Jesus teaches about money and what that means for our lives. And this morning, it's another text about riches. We've already looked at riches Uh, twice in the scriptures, and here's a third time. But what we have to realize is when Jesus talks about wealth, when he talks about riches, it's not just money that he has in mind. It's also our stuff. It's also our possessions, the houses, the cars, um, the fortune that makes up our lives, which also includes our money. And in our passage today, Jesus says there's more to life Than our stuff. There's more to life than the abundance of our possessions. But the problem is that we often make life about our stuff. And when we do, it's damaging. It damages relationships. It damages us. We can't hold on to our stuff, and it actually robs us of our souls. And so this morning, as we look through our text in Luke chapter 12, we're going to see three things. First, when we make life about our stuff, we always want more. Second, When we live like this, it damages us. And then lastly, we'll look at true riches. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Some quick context. In chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that a large crowd has gathered to hear Jesus, many thousands, and that they were even trampling upon one another to speak to Jesus. And it's within that context that this man pipes up within the crowd and says something to Jesus in verse 13. He doesn't actually have a question. It's a command. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This man, he wants his share of the family inheritance. He wants his stuff. I don't know, maybe it's a portion of the land, some of the animals, a part of the acquired goods. And of course, it's some of the money. He wants the wealth, the security, his not-so-little or little piece of the family pie. And since he's asking Jesus to tell his brother what to do, we can assume there's some sort of family conflict going on here. And since he's asking Jesus to resolve it on his behalf, uh, we can actually assume he's the younger brother, because it would be the responsibility of the older brother to divvy up the inheritance, and for whatever reason, the older brother isn't giving it out. Now, on the surface, this doesn't look all bad. This man, he simply wants his inheritance. He wants his due. He wants his share. And he, his brother's withholding it. He wants Jesus to fix it for him. But as we'll see in the text, there's something more going on in his heart. Jesus responds in verses 14 and 15. Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions what we see is what is actually driving this man isn't just his desire to have his share and his due. It's something more insidious. In Jesus' warning, we see that he's actually driven by a desire to covet, by covetousness. And we don't use this word a lot, do we? It's not like kids are running around St. Peter's going, Mom, Billy's coveting. We, we, we don't talk like this, unless you know your kid's Roger Revel with an overdeveloped vocabulary, but... But kids know all about coveting. When a kid cries out, Mom, Billy's not playing fair, it's normally because Billy has coveted. Imagine, you have a stuffed panda named Pedro. And Pedro is a particular type of panda. Pedro the panda doesn't like to be shared, but before you know it, Billy snags Pedro from you and starts playing with him. Well, what happened? Billy coveted. He wanted Pedro the panda, and so he took him from you. We know on a basic level, on a basic definition, uh, coveting means wanting what someone else has for our own. But there's more to it than that. And this is why the Ten Commandments frames coveting within the context of do not covet your neighbor's wife. Because only your neighbor Joe can have Mary as his wife. Coveting isn't just thinking, oh wow, Mary is really nice and Joe and her seem to have a really great relationship and I really hope that one day I have a beautiful marriage like that. Coveting is more like Joe has Mary and I want Mary, which usually includes thinking, she will be mine. Oh, yes, she will be mine. (laughs) It's the recognition that only one person can have her. The desire of coveting, it leads to all sorts of damaging actions. We know this. When I was in the sixth grade, I had a crush on a girl named Shauna. Now, don't worry, I hadn't met Julia yet, nothing weird was going on. Uh, But the the problem uh, was Shauna was one of the popular girls in class, and she had a boyfriend, and, and even if she didn't have a boyfriend, there was always a long line of suitors to get Shauna's hand. And I wanted to be her boyfriend, so I came up with a plan, came up with a strategy. I will get her some jewelry, because I understood that girls like shiny things. But there's a slight problem. I didn't have a job, I didn't have an allowance, But I was a clever kid and I figured out a plan. Late one night, I think it was around 2 a.m., very late for a sixth grader, while my parents were uh, sleeping, I snuck into their room, went into my mom's jewelry box, and took a pair of earrings. It was a universal lesson to be learned here, gentlemen. When courting a woman, a stolen pair of your mother's earrings isn't gonna cut it. But I didn't know this, nor did I know that the type of jewelry an adult woman wears is not the type of jewelry a young little girl in the sixth grade wears. And so the next day during recess, I thought I was being smooth. I took the earrings and I put them into Shauna's desk with a little note. The next day, I got to my desk and the earrings were in my desk with a note that said, thanks for your mother's earrings, but no thanks. (laughs) Crushing, I know. What was going on with little Alistair? I coveted Shauna. That's the desire, coveting. And it's a skewed desire. Because when we act on it, it leads uh, to no good place. In my instance, it led to stealing. And not just stealing earrings from my mom, but the attempt to steal Shauna from her boyfriend. And this example, it's innocent, but we know as we grew up that coveting leads to all sorts of damaging actions. You want the girl who's engaged at the cost of breaking up that engagement. You want someone's corner office, even if it means you get them fired or demoted. You want the inheritance, even if it costs your family unity, even if it means permanently fracturing a relationship with your siblings. We can covet people. We can covet stuff. And when we act on our covetous desire, it always leads to damaging things. But even when we don't act on coveting, coveting still messes us up. You want it and you covet it. Someone has it, you know, it's the job, it's the title, it's the apartment, it's the car, it's the higher quality of life. But you see that, you want it, and you covet it. Yet because you're coveting it, suddenly you find that the things you have just don't look quite as good. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, compared to so-and-so, wow, maybe I settled. Your job, although it pays the bills, it's just not satisfying enough. Your body, although it's healthy, just doesn't look quite as good as the bodies in the magazines. Your coveting, it breeds all sorts of discontentment and anger and frustration, but most of all, it it breeds an inability to appreciate the things that you actually have. And you look to the other things and you think, I deserve those things. Coveting, as a desire in and of itself, is sinful because it never leads anywhere good. It leads to damaging actions, and it leads to a damaging disposition within us. Which is why Jesus tells the crowd and this man to take care. The Greek is literally, watch out. And then he says, be on your guard. Watch out against coveting. Be on your guard against coveting. Jesus doubles up on Uh, The commands to emphasize the point, when you covet, you are entering into a very dangerous space. Why is it so dangerous? It's dangerous because when you're coveting, you're living as if life is found in your possessions. If life uh, will be complete somehow, once you have achieved that or received that, life depends on the stuff you have which flies in the face of what Jesus explicitly says in verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To draw this out, Jesus tells a brilliant parable. Look at verse 16. This is where he sets the stage. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So we have a rich man, he has a farm, and... This is called a bumper crop, I found out. I don't even know why, but it just means you, you had a whole lot of crops. And suddenly, with this surplus, with this success, this man has a decision to make. What will I do with this success? Many of you know what this is like. You get a little extra. You, know, you get your tax return, or an investment performs a little better than you expected, or you've been taking the extra shifts and your paycheck is larger, or you're working the second job, but somehow you end up with more, and you have to decide. What am I going to do with my excess? What shall I do now? Well, we do a lot of things. Uh, sometimes we use it for security. We throw it into our savings accounts or into our retirement package, or we invest it some more, or we repay some debt. Sometimes we use it to indulge. We upgrade our lifestyle. We, we finally move into the two-bedroom apartment, or we, um, we finally renovate the kitchen, or we finally get the car we always wanted, or we go on that dream vacation. The man in the parable, he would say to you, why choose between security and indulgence? Verse 18, he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be married. Or marry, but you could get married too, I guess. (laughs) If we're honest... If we're honest, we're looking at this guy and we're thinking, he's arrived. This is our vision of retirement. We save up as much as we can so that we can retire as young as we can and enjoy life for as long as we can. For us, retirement is about having enough security so we can kick up our feet and relax or travel the world or eat and be merry, Or be married, apparently. Our goal in retiring is acquiring the right amount of security so that we can indulge the rest of our lives. This is the modern vision of retirement. But Jesus is telling this parable uh, to draw out how this perspective on life is dangerous and damaging. So what's the problem? Look closely at verse 19. It reveals a lot about how this guy actually sees the world. I will say to my soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. To him, the greatest thing anyone can accomplish is to have enough goods so that their lives can be fulfilled and satisfied through eating, drinking, and having a good time. His purpose in his life is all about himself and his stuff. There's a technical phrase for this. It's called hedonism. It's the idea that pleasure or happiness is the highest pursuit anyone can aim for. Anton Levet advocated this worldview. He believed that one's highest aim should be materialism and individualism knit together. Listen to something he wrote. I don't crave companionship. It stands in the way. I live for pleasure. There are few persons who can give me as much pleasure as those acts I perform myself. I would rather create pleasure according to my own whims than be subjected to the whims of others. He sounds a lot like the man in the parable, don't you think? You should also know that he is the founder of the modern day church of Satan. Hedonism is central to modern day Satanism. Now, we get this picture that Satanists, you know, are worshiping Satan, but modern day Satanism is about worshiping of the self. Celebrating the self. That's what's happening in this parable. How is making life about ourselves and about pleasure and about comfort, how is that damaging? Well, what we see in this parable first is that it damages relationships. The man, uh, he's speaking to himself in the parable. The first person pronoun, it appears uh, 11 times. This individualized decision-making process flies in the face of how the Middle Eastern community worked. When you had wealth or when you had a surplus, you didn't make that what to do with that on your own. Like you would talk to your family at the very least. You'd talk to some friends. You might even talk to the village about how this wealth should be used. But he sees his wealth solely as his. Look at his speech more carefully. My crops, my barns, my greens my goods, my soul. Life is about him and his stuff, and it cuts him off from community, from his family, from his friends. And we know this. When we pursue stuff, when we make it our aim, it damages our relationships. You might work those extra hours, but to the detriment of spending any time with your friends. You might save up for that dream vacation, but at the cost of loved ones never seeing your face. You may be working those extra hours so that you can retire one day to spend time with your family, but you're not going to spend time with them today. When we pursue material goods, when we seek after abundance, our relationships suffer. We know this. But the damage doesn't just stop at our relationships. We suffer. When we think life is just about enjoying stuff and indulging in it, we actually limit what our lives were made for. This man in the parable, he's alone, and he seems to be okay with it, but he thinks that his soul, his life, will be satisfied simply by eating and drinking and being merry. He thinks that life is fulfillment and found, like his true purpose is found in indulging in the stuff, but we know this isn't true, don't we? Anytime we binge on entertainment, you know, you watched 12 episodes of House of Cards last night, you know. When we indulge in our favorite things, you eat the entire pint of ice cream. What happens? Well, at first it's good. It's like any vacation. The first few weeks are awesome. Then what happens? You get bored. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't last. Why? Because our souls were made for more than that. You see, it's, it's a good thing. God, like, he's not telling us to never eat or drink or have a good time. But He's saying that is not the end of your life. There is so much more to your life than these things. And when we settle for these things, we're actually settling for less. We're selling ourselves short. Jesus says there's so much more to life than this. But the greatest damage we cause isn't just to our relationships. It isn't just to ourself. It's, uh, it's actually to our relationship with God. Look at how Jesus concludes this parable in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Or as the sage Mr. T would say, I pity the fool. God calls this rich man a fool. It seems harsh, but only at first. A fool in the scriptures is someone who lives their life as if there is no God. And let me be honest, if there's no God, hedonism is the way to go. If no God, I would be a nihilistic hedonist. You can look that up later. But here's the thing. There are a lot of good reasons to believe there is a God. And if there is a God, and there is, we've settled for less than what God created us for, if we settle for hedonism. And so we're rightly called fools. But this man, he's called a fool, not just because he is pursuing the wrong things or because he's settled for less than what's available in life. Look back at verse 19. What does he call his soul? My soul. And God says to him in verse 20, Your soul is required of you. This word required is actually a, a loan. Your soul has been on loan from me. Now it's required from you. He's a fool because he thinks his life is his own. If God can take away our lives at any moment, if our lives and our breath are but alone from the lungs of God, one thing becomes clear. Living for ourselves and for our stuff is a huge mistake. When God asks this man, the things you've prepared, whose will they be? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is not yours. Your stuff isn't yours. Your life isn't yours. This rich fool fails to account for this. He tries to secure his wealth and his future, and he loses it all in one night. And now, after telling this parable about the rich fool, Jesus says in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Do you think, like, you're the man demanding your inheritance, you hear this parable. What are you thinking? It's running through your mind. He's been thinking if he could just have his share of the inheritance, even if it costs his relationship with his brother, he'll be one step closer to having arrived. His life will be one step closer to having security. He'll be one step closer to the good life. But he's told that when he makes his life about himself, when he makes his life about his stuff, he's a fool. And he isn't just a fool, he's a fool before God. Even if he arrives, he's told he's missed it. He's missed that there's more to life than this. There's more to life. And we so often miss it. And it can be standing right in front of us. This man, he is standing before the author of life. and He misses it. How often do we come before Jesus like this man making demands and completely missing Jesus? How often are our demands just disguised in prayers? Lord, give me that job. I really want this job. But if he asked you, why do you want that job? Well, I want to make more money so I can buy more stuff. And then we curse God when he doesn't give us the job. God, you know, fill me with abundance and then um, I will follow you with it. But really, we just want more money in our bank account so we feel secure. You see, the moment that we settle for life being about ourselves, for for life being about how much security we can acquire, for life being about indulgence and stuff, and even seeking Jesus and asking for these things. We've missed it. And according to Jesus, we're fools before God. So if life doesn't consist of these things, if life doesn't consist of fulfilling our souls through indulgence and security, what does it consist of? It has something to do with being rich toward God. But this phrase, it's a little blurry, don't you think? Rich toward God, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be rich towards someone at all? We have to recognize being rich towards someone is different than being rich in something, which is generally how we think. I'm rich in pogs, or I'm, I'm rich in bitcoins, or I'm rich in stamps, or I'm rich in currency. But being rich toward someone means an investment in that person, a pouring of yourself and your resources and your time and your energy into that person for no other reason than wanting to. For example, I'm rich towards Ansley. I spend a lot of time with her. I lose sleep for her. Julia loses more, just to be clear. Uh, I invest money into her. We sacrifice for her. I pour my love into her. I take photos and put them on Facebook, because I am rich towards her, and I want you guys to be rich towards her as well. But the truth is, she is not exactly the greatest conversationalist right now. The conversations are a little bit shallow. You know, it's usually about toys, but I am rich towards her regardless of what she can offer me. And here's the thing. Any one of you would say, Alistair, you would be a fool if you don't invest in your daughter now. If I just moved away for 20 years and came back, all of you would say, you missed out. You were poor towards her. So what does it mean then to be rich toward God? It means that we see God as the ultimate thing, the one thing even, that our lives should be spent on. That we should invest our all into, our time, our money, our energy, our love. Being rich towards God is first and foremost the recognition that life is not about you. It's the recognition that life is about God and his glory and his purposes. And so we invest our all into seeing him and into knowing him. Being rich toward God frees us from this pursuit of security and indulgence. Why? Because we found a security in God that can never be taken away. We find joy. We're told there's fullness of joy in God that is everlasting. And the security and the joy that is found in God can never be taken away from us, not even by death. Which is why Paul says to the Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Being rich toward God means you recognize that everything in your life pales in comparison to Jesus. Put anything on the table and I'll show you how Jesus is more. Put your money on the table. Paul tells us that Jesus, has, the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing available in heaven in Christ Jesus. You have everything in him. Put your clothes on the table. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Put food on the table. Jesus is the bread of life. He can fulfill every desire. Which is, again, why Paul writes to the Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Being rich towards God means you would choose Jesus over the millions. You would choose Jesus over the house. You would choose Jesus over temporary comfort because you know his worth. Being rich towards God means letting God shape our values and valuing the things that he values. Valuing people over the stuff. This man that's asking Jesus for his inheritance, the implication is that he cares more about getting the stuff than reconciliation with his brother. Nowhere does he say, help me work out this conflict with my brother so that we can be reunited. The man in the parable, he's isolated and lone and cut off from his community. Being rich towards God is a recognition that we cannot pursue God on our own, that we need others to pursue God with us. Being rich towards God means um, there is never a moment in our lives that we can live for ourselves. Not now. And I hate to break it to you, not in retirement. You might retire from your career and your vocation. That is perfectly fine. You might save up so that you can live and survive. That is perfectly fine. But don't you think for a moment that your life and time suddenly can be spent on yourself. All of us are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of us are called to be faithful to him every moment, every second of our lives. There is no point in this time of eternity on this side from... Eternal life with God that we ever get to hold our lives for ourselves. Being rich towards God is the willingness to expand our lives for him. Being rich towards God then also means that all of our stuff, our money, our wealth, we put at his feet. And we allow him to do with it what he will. It might mean giving to some cause you like. It might mean tithing. It might actually mean buying that house. But it means that you invite God into the process of how he has blessed you and what he wants you to do with those blessings. Because when you're rich towards God, you recognize that everything you have is from him anyways. So the picture that emerges when we consider just some of the ways that we can be rich towards God is that God has to be our everything, our all in all. And this is where a problem confronts us. I don't know about you, but in talking about God like this, about how we could be rich towards God, I see that I'm poor towards God. He often gets my leftovers. I got wrecked preparing this text. It was brutal. I I covet a lot. You should know that. I am not above this text. And I'm trying to repent of that. I try to find my security in the digits in my savings account or in my investments. And we read this text and it messes with us. And we realize we just give God our leftovers. We are poor towards him. And what I miss and maybe you, what you miss as well is how God is rich towards us. How God has given us everything in Jesus Christ. How God is so rich toward us and loves us so much and desires us so much that he gave his only son. That he literally spent everything Everything he had on us. He poured out his love, every piece of it, so that he could have us. He is rich towards us. He's blessed us with everything he has. And him being rich towards us is not contingent on us being rich toward him. It's actually the opposite. I'm finding that the more that I understand how much God loves us, how much God loves me, how much God loves you, is actually what propels our feet towards Jesus. It's actually where we find our ability and our strength to be rich in return. We love God because he first loved us. So I want to ask just a couple questions. Are you going to settle for riches and possessions that death will rob you of? Are you going to settle for focusing on yourself and your stuff? Things that can never bring you lasting security and joy? Or will you put your trust in the riches of God, which can never be taken away from you? Are you rich towards Jesus, or are you rich towards yourself? Jesus stands before this man demanding his inheritance and subtly, through parables, says, You're a fool. You're so concerned about your inheritance, you're willing to sacrifice your brother, and you don't see that your truest inheritance is standing before you. The inheritance of eternal life that no one can steal from you. Why would we hold any of our lives back? Why would we live for ourselves and our stuff when we see what God is offering us? The truth is, if we turn to anything else, we're fools. I want to get practical for a second, because if we're going to be rich towards God, it does involve our stuff. It does involve using our wealth and our goods, not for ourselves, but also for the sake of others. Imagine how differently this parable would have gone if this rich man has the excess and he says, Lord, thank you for blessing me in abundance this year. Lord, what do you want me to do with this? What if he turned to his brother and said, what do you think I should do with all this extra cash that God's given me? What if he turned to his community and said, how can we use this abundance to make sure that there's no hungry in our midst? What if he had seen that his life is not the end of the blessing, but the conduit of it, that God has blessed him so that he can become a blessing to others? What if the parable ended in this man using those resources for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of those who don't have what he has? Can you imagine that? Imagine that in your own life.